Welcome to the Huberman Lab podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Andrew Huberman, and I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Matthew McDougall. Dr. Matthew McDougall is the head neurosurgeon at Neuralink. Neuralink is a company whose goal is to develop technologies to overcome specific clinical challenges of the brain and nervous system, as well as to improve upon brain design, that is, to improve the way that brains currently function by augmenting memory, by augmenting cognition, and by improving communication between humans and between machines and humans. These are all, of course, tremendous goals. And Neuralink is uniquely poised to accomplish these goals because they are approaching these challenges by combining both existing knowledge of brain function from the fields of neuroscience and neurosurgery with robotics, machine learning, computer science, and the development of novel devices in order to change the ways that human brains work for the better. Today's conversation with Dr. Matthew McDougall is a truly special one because I and Many others in science and medicine consider neurosurgeons the astronauts of neuroscience and the brain. That is, they go where others have simply not gone before and are in a position to discover incredibly novel things about how the human brain works because they are literally in there probing and cutting, stimulating, etc., and able to monitor how people's cognition and behavior and speech changes as the brain itself is changed structurally and functionally. Today's discussion with Dr. McDougall will teach you how the brain works through the lens of a neurosurgeon. It will also teach you about Neuralink's specific perspective about which challenges of brain function and disease are immediately tractable, which ones they are working on now, that is, as well as where they see the future of augmenting brain function for sake of treating disease and for simply making brains work better. Today's discussion also gets into the realm of devising the peripheral nervous system. In fact, one thing that you'll learn is that Dr. McDougall has a radio receiver implanted in the periphery of his own body. He did this not to overcome any specific clinical challenge, but to overcome a number of daily, everyday life challenges, and in some ways to demonstrate the powerful utility of combining novel machines, novel devices, with what we call our nervous system. And different objects and technologies within the world. I know that might sound a little bit mysterious, but you'll soon learn exactly what I'm referring to. And by the way, he also implanted his family members with similar devices. So while all of this might sound a little bit like science fiction, this is truly science reality. These experiments, both the implantation of specific devices and the attempt to overcome specific movement disorders, such as Parkinson's and other disorders of deep brain function, as well as to augment the human brain and make it work far better than it ever has in the course of human evolution are experiments and things that are happening now at Neuralink. Dr. McDougall also generously takes us under the hood, so to speak, of what's happening at Neuralink, explaining exactly the sorts of experiments that they are doing and have planned, how they are approaching those experiments. We get into an extensive conversation about the utility of animal versus human research in probing brain function and in devising and improving the human brain and in overcoming disease in terms of neurosurgery and Neuralink's goals. By the end of today's episode, you will have a much clearer understanding of how human brains work and how they can be improved by robotics and engineering. And you'll have a very clear picture of what Neuralink is doing toward these goals. Dr. McDougall did his medical training at the University of California, San Diego, and at Stanford University School of Medicine, and of course is now at Neuralink. So he is in a unique stance to teach us about human brain function, and dysfunction, 
and to explain to us what the past, present, and future of brain augmentation is really all about. Before we begin, I'd like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at Stanford. It is, however, part of my desire and effort to bring zero cost to consumer information about science and science-related tools to the general public. In keeping with that theme, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's podcast. Our first sponsor is Element. Element is an electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means plenty of salt, magnesium, and potassium, the so-called electrolytes, and no sugar. Now, salt, magnesium, and potassium are critical to the function of all the cells in your body, in particular to the function of your nerve cells, also called neurons. In fact, in order for your neurons to function properly, all three electrolytes need to be present in the proper ratios. And we now know that even slight reductions in electrolyte concentrations or dehydration of the body can lead to deficits in cognitive and physical performance. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams, that's one gram of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. I typically drink Element first thing in the morning when I wake up in order to hydrate my body and make sure I have enough electrolytes. And while I do any kind of physical training and after physical training as well, especially if I've been sweating a lot, if you'd like to try Element, you can go to Drink Element, that's lmnt.com slash Huberman, to claim a free Element sample pack with your purchase. Again, that's Drink element, lmnt.com slash Huberman. And now for my discussion with Dr. Matthew McDougall. Dr. McDougall, welcome. Good to be here. Nice Great. to see you, Andrew. Great to see you again. Uh, we'll get into our history a little bit later, but just to kick things off, as a neurosurgeon and as a neuroscientist, could you share with us your vision of the brain as an organ as it relates to what's possible there. I mean, I think yeah. most everyone understands that the brain is along with the body, the seat of our cognition, feelings, our ability to move, et cetera. And that damage there can limit our ability to feel the way we want to feel or move the way we want to move. But surgeons tend to view the world a little bit differently than most because as the not so funny joke goes, you know, they like to cut and they like to fix and they like to mend. And they, in your case, have the potential to add things into the brain that don't exist there already. So how do you think about and conceptualize the brain as an organ? And what do you think is really possible with the brain that most of us don't already probably think about? Yeah, that's a great question. Thinking about the brain as this three pound lump of meat trapped in a prison of the skull, um, it seems almost magical that it could create a uh, you know, a human, a human set of behaviors and a, a life um, merely from electrical impulses. Uh, when you start to see patients and see, say, a small tumor eating away at a little part of the brain uh, and see a, a very discrete function of that brain go down in isolation, uh, you start to realize that the brain really is a collection of functional modules pinned together, duct taped together. Um, in this in this bone box attached to your head, um, and uh, sometimes you see very interesting failure modes. So one of the most uh, memorable patients I ever had was very early on in my training. I was down at UC San Diego and saw um, a very young guy who had just been in a car accident. We had operated on him. And, you know, as is so often the case in neurosurgery, we had saved his life potentially at the cost of quality of life. Uh, when he woke from surgery with 
bilateral frontal lobe damage, he had essentially no impulse control left. And so, uh, you know, we rounded on him after surgery, saw that he was doing okay to our, you know, first guess at, at his uh, health. And we continued on to see our other patients and we were called back by his, you know, 80 year old recovery room nurse saying, you've got to come see your patient right away. Something's wrong. And we walk in to see him and he points at his elderly nurse and says, she won't have sex with me. Uh, and, you know, it was apparent at that moment, his frontal lobes were gone. And that person is never going to have reasonable human behavior again. Um, and uh, that's, you know, it's one of the most tragic ways to have a brain malfunction. But, uh, you know, anything a brain does, anything from control of hormone levels in your body to vision, to sensation, to, you know, the most obvious thing, which is muscle movement of any kind from eye movement to moving your bicep, uh, all that comes out of the brain. All of it can go wrong. Uh, any of it, any part of it or all of it. Um, so yeah, working with the brain is uh, the substance of the brain as a surgeon, very high stakes. Uh, but you know, once in a while you get a chance to really help, you get a chance to fix something that seems unfixable and you have, you know, Lazarus like miracles, not, not too uncommonly. Uh, so it's extremely satisfying as a career. Could you share with us one of the more satisfying experiences sure. uh, or perhaps, uh, the top contour of what um, qualifies as satisfying in, in neurosurgery. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the relatively newer techniques that we do is, you know, if someone comes in with a, a reasonably small tumor somewhere deep in the brain that's hard to get to, the traditional approach to taking that out would involve cutting through a lot of good, normal brain and disrupting a lot of neurons, a lot of white matter that, you know, kind of the wires connecting neurons. Um, then the modern approach involves a two millimeter drill hole in the skull down which you can pass a little fiber optic, uh, cannula and, and, uh, attach it to a laser and just heat the tumor up deep inside the brain under direct MRI visualization in real time. So you're, this person is in the MRI scanner, you're taking pictures every second or so as the tumor heats up, you can monitor the temperature. Uh, and get it exactly where you want it, where it's going to kill all those tumor cells, but not hurt hardly any of the brain surrounding it. And so uh, not uncommonly nowadays, we have someone come in with a tumor that previously would have been catastrophic to operate on, and we can eliminate that tumor with, you know, leaving a poke hole in their skin uh, with uh, almost no visual uh, after effects. So that procedure that you just described translates into better clinical outcomes, meaning fewer, let's call them side effects or collateral damage. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, we don't, you know, even in cases that previously would have considered totally inoperable, say a tumor uh, in the brain stem or a tumor in uh, primary motor cortex or primary um, verbal areas, Broca's area, uh, where we would have expected to either not operate or do catastrophic damage, those people sometimes now are coming out unscathed. I'm very curious about the sorts of basic information about brain function that can be gleaned from these clinical approaches of yeah. lesions and 
um, strokes and um, yeah. maybe even stimulation. Uh, so for instance, in your example of this patient that had bilateral frontal damage, what do you think his lack of regulation reveals about the normal functioning of the frontal lobes? Because I think the obvious answer to most people is going to be, well, the frontal lobes are normally um, limiting impulsivity. Right. But as we both know, because the brain has excitatory and inhibitory neurons, so sort of accelerators and brakes on communication, right. th that isn't necessarily the straightforward answer. Um, it could be, for instance, that the frontal lobes are um, acting as conductors right. and are kind of um, important, but not the immediate players in determining impulsivity. So um, two questions, really. What do you think the frontal lobes are doing? Because I'm very intrigued by this uh, human expanded real estate. Yeah. We have a lot of it compared to other animals. And um, more generally, what do you think damage of a given neural tissue um, means in terms of understanding the basic function of that tissue? Yeah, it, it varies, I think, from tissue to tissue. Um, but with respect to the frontal lobes, I think they act as sort of a, a filter. They selectively are saying, shh, backward to the rest of the brain behind them. Um, when part of your brain says, that looks very attractive, I want to go grab it and take it, uh, you know, out of the jewelry display case or, you know, whatever. Um, the frontal lobes are saying, you can if you go pay for it first, right? They're filtering the behavior. They're, they're letting the impulse through maybe, uh, but in a controlled way. Mm -hmm. um, this is very high level, very broad uh, uh, thinking about how the frontal lobes work. And that that patient I mentioned earlier is a great example of when they go wrong. You know, he had this impulse, this sort of strange impulse to... Uh, be attracted to his nurse, uh, that normally it would be easy for our frontal lobes to say, this is completely inappropriate, wrong setting, wrong uh, person, wrong time. Uh, shh. In his case, he had nothing there. And so even the slightest inclination to, uh, to want something came right out to the surface. Uh, so um, yeah, a, a filter calming the rest of the brain down from acting on every possible impulse. When I was a graduate student, I was um, running what are called, you know these, uh, uh, what these are, but just to inform people what are called acutes, which are um, neurophysiological experiments that last several days because at the end you, uh, you terminate the animal. This right. isn't, uh, my apologies to those that um, are made uncomfortable by animal research. I now work on humans, uh, so a different type of animal. But at the time, we were running these acutes that would start one day and, and maybe end two or three days la later. And so you get a lot of data. The animal's anesthetized and doesn't feel any pain the entire time of the surgery. But the um, one consequence of these experiments is that the experimenter, me, and another individual are awake for several days with mm -hmm. an hour of sleep here or an hour of sleep there. But you're basically awake for two, three days, something that really I could only do in my teens and 20s. Uh, I was in my 20s at the time. And I recall um, going to eat at a diner after one of these experiments. And I was very hungry. And the waitress walking by with a tray full of food for another table. And it took every bit of self-control to not get up and take the food off the tray, something that, of course, is totally inappropriate and I would never do. And it must have been, based on what you just said, that my forebrain was essentially going offline or offline from the sleep deprivation. Right. Because there was a moment there where I thought I might reach up and grab a plate of food passing by simply because I wanted it. Right. And um, I didn't. Um, but I 
can relate to the experience of feeling like the shh response is a flickering in and out under conditions of sleep deprivation. So do we know whether or not sleep deprivation limits forebrain activity in a similar kind of way? You know, I, I don't know specifically if that uh, effect is more pronounced in the forebrain uh, as opposed to other brain regions, but uh, it's clear that sleep deprivation has broad effects all over the brain. Uh, people start to see visual hallucinations, so the opposite end of the brain, as you know, the, the visual cortex in the far back of the brain is uh, affected. People, um, people's coordin motor coordination goes down uh, after sleep deprivation. So, um, I think, you know, if I if you force me to give a, a definitive answer on that question, I'd have to guess that the entire brain is uh, affected by sleep deprivation, and it's not clear that one part of the brain is more affected than another. So we've been talking about damage to the brain and inferring function from damage. Uh, we could talk a little bit about what I consider really the holy grail of the nervous system, which is neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. this incredible capacity of the nervous system to change its wiring, mm -hmm. strengthen connections, weaken connections, maybe new neurons, but probably more strengthening and weakening of connections. Right. Nowadays, we hear a lot of excitement about so-called classical psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, which do seem to quote unquote open plasticity. They do a bunch of other things too, but um, through the release of neuromodulators like serotonin and so forth. How do you think about neuroplasticity? And more specifically, what do you think the potential for neuroplasticity is in the adult? So let's say older than 25 year old brain with or without machines being involved. Because yeah. um, in your role at Neuralink and as a neurosurgeon in other clinical settings, um, surely you are using machines and surely you've seen plasticity in the positive and negative direction. Right. What do you think about plasticity? What's possible there without machines? What's possible with machines? So uh, as you mentioned or alluded to, the plasticity definitely goes down in older brains. Um, uh, it, it is harder for older people to learn new things, to make radical changes in their behavior. Uh, to you know, kick habits that they've had for years. Um, machines aren't the obvious answer. So implanted electrodes and computers aren't the obvious answer to increase plasticity necessarily compared to uh, drugs. We already know that there are pharmacologics, some of the ones you mentioned, psychedelics, that have a broad impact on plasticity. Yeah, it's hard to know which area of the brain would be most potent uh, as a stimulation target for an electrode uh, to broadly juice plasticity uh, compared to, uh, you know, pharmacologic agents that we already know about. Um, I think with plasticity, you're talking in general, you're talking about the entire brain. You're talking about altering, you know, a trillion synapses all in a similar way. Uh, in their tendency to be rewirable, to their tendency to be up or down weighted. Uh, and an electrical stimulation target in the brain necessarily has to be focused. You know, with a device like potentially Neuralinks, there might be a more broad ability to steer current uh, to multiple targets um, with some degree of control, but you're never going to get that broad um, targetability with uh, any electrodes that I can see coming in our lifetimes, so say that would be coding the entire 
surface and depth of the brain the way that a drug can. And so I think plasticity research will bear the most fruit when it focuses on pharmacologic agents. I wasn't expecting that answer, given that you're at Neuralink. And, um, and then again, I think that all of us, me included, need to um, take a step back and realize that while we may think we know what is going on at Neuralink in terms of the specific goals and the general goals, and I certainly have in mind, I think most people have in mind, a chip implanted in the brain or maybe even the peripheral nervous system that can give people super memories or some other augmented capacity. We really don't know what you all are doing there. Uh, yeah. For all we know, um, you guys are taking or administering psilocybin and combining that with stimulation. I mean, we really don't know. And I say this um, with a with a tone of excitement because um, I think that one of the things that's so exciting about the different endeavors that Elon has really spearheaded, um, SpaceX, Tesla, et cetera, is that early on there's there's a lot of mystique. Right. You know, mystique is a quality that um, is not often talked about, but um, it's, I think, a very exciting time in which um, engineers are starting to uh, toss up big problems and go for it. And, and obviously Elon is certainly among the best, if not the best in terms of going really big. I mean, Mars seems pretty far to me. Right. Electric cars are all over the road nowadays, very different than the picture a few years ago right. uh, when you didn't see so many of them, rockets and so forth, and now the brain. So to the extent that you are allowed, um, could you share with us what your vision for the missions at Neuralink are and what the general scope of missions are. And then um, if possible, uh, share with us some of the more specific goals. I can imagine basic goals of yeah. trying to understand the brain and augment the brain. I could imagine clinical goals of trying to repair things in um, humans that are suffering in some way or yeah. animals for that matter. Yeah, it's, it's funny what, what you mentioned. Uh, Neuralink and I think Tesla and SpaceX before it uh, end up being these blank canvases that people project their hopes and fears onto. And so we, uh, we experience a lot of upside in this. People you know, assume that we have superpowers uh, in our ability to alter the way brains work and people have terrifying fears of the horrible things we're gonna do. Uh, for the most part, those extremes are not true. Uh, you know, we are making a neural implant we have a robotic insertion device that helps place tiny electrodes, the size uh, smaller than the size of a human hair, uh, all throughout a small region of the brain. Uh, in, in the first indication that we're aiming at, we are hoping to implant a series of these electrodes into the brains of people that have had a bad spinal cord injury. So people that are essentially quadriplegic, they have perfect brains, but they can't move, use them to move their body. They can't move their arms or legs. Because of some high level spinal cord damage. Exactly right. And so this you know, pristine motor cortex up in their brain is completely capable of operating a human body. It's just not wired properly any longer to a human's arms or legs. And so our goal is to uh, place this implant uh, into a motor cortex and have that person be able to then control uh, a computer. So a mouse and a keyboard, uh, as if they had their hands on a mouse and a keyboard, even though they aren't moving their hands, their motor intentions are coming directly out of the brain into the device. 
Uh, and so they're able to regain their digital freedom uh, and connect with the world through the internet. Why use robotics to insert these chips? And the reason I ask that is that, sure, I can imagine that a robot could be um, more precise or less precise, but in theory, more precise than the human hand. No tremor, for instance. Right. Um, uh, more precision in terms of uh, maybe even a little um, micro detection device on the uh, the tip of the blade or um, or something that could detect a, a capillary that you would want to avoid and swerve around that um, exactly the human right. eye couldn't detect. And you and I both know, however, that no two brains, nor are the two sides of the same brain identical. Right. So navigating through the brain is perhaps best carried out by a human. However, and here I'm going to interrupt myself again and say, 10 years ago, face recognition was very clearly performed better by humans than machines. And I think now machines do it better. Right. So is this the idea that eventually, or maybe even now, robots are better surgeons than humans are? In, in this limited case, yes. Uh, these electrodes are so tiny and the blood vessels on the surface of the brain so numerous and so densely packed that a human physically can't do this. A, a human hand is not steady enough to grab this you know, couple micron width loop uh, at the end of our electrode thread and place it accurately, uh, blindly, by the way, into the cortical surface. Uh, accurately enough at the right depth to get through all the cortical layers that we want to reach. Um, and I would love if human surgeons were, you know, essential to this process. Uh, but very soon, humans run out of motor skills sufficient to do this job. And so we are required, in this case, to lean on robots to do this incredibly precise, uh, incredibly fast incredibly numerous placement of electrodes into the right area of the brain. So in some ways, Neuralink is pioneering the development of robotic surgeons as much as it's pioneering the exploration and augmentation and treatment of human brain conditions. Right. And as the device exists currently, uh, as we're submitting it to the FDA, it is only for the placement of the electrodes, uh, the, the robot's part of the surgery. Uh, I or, or another neurosurgeon still needs to do the, you know, the more crude part of opening the skin and skull and presenting the robot a pristine brain surface to sew electrodes into. Well, surely getting quadriplegics to be able to move again, or maybe even to walk again, is a um, heroic goal and one that I think everyone would agree would be wonderful to accomplish. Is that the first goal because it's hard but doable? Right. Um, or is that the first goal because you and Elon and other folks at Neuralink um, have a passion for um, getting paralyzed people to move again? Yeah. Broadly speaking, you know, the mission of Neuralink is to reduce human suffering, at least in the near term. Um, you know, there's hope that eventually there's a use here that makes sense for uh, a brain inf interface to. Uh, bring AI uh, as a tool embedded in the brain uh, that a human can use to augment their capabilities. I think that's pretty far down the road uh, for us, um, but definitely on a desired roadmap. In the near term, we really are focused on 
people with terrible medical problems that have no options right now. Um, with regard to motor control, uh, you know, our mutual uh, friend recently departed, uh, Krishna Shanoi, was a giant in this field of motor prosthesis. Um, it just so happens that his work was foundational for a lot of people that work in this area, including us. And he was an advisor to Neuralink. Um, that work was farther along than most other work for uh, addressing any function that lives on the surface of the brain. The physical constraints of our approach require us currently to focus on only surface features on the brain. So we can't say go to the really um, very compelling uh, surface uh, deep depth functions that happen in the brain, uh, like you know mood, uh, appetite, addiction, uh, pain, sleep. We'd love to get to that place eventually, but. Uh, in the immediate future, our first indication or two or three will probably be brain surface functions like motor control. I'd like to take a quick break and acknowledge one of our sponsors, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens, now called AG1, is a vitamin mineral probiotic drink that covers all of your foundational nutritional needs. I've been taking Athletic Greens since 2012, so I'm delighted that they're sponsoring the podcast. The reason I started taking Athletic Greens and the reason I still take Athletic Greens once or usually twice a day is that it gets me the probiotics that I need for gut health. Our gut is very important. It's populated by gut microbiota that communicate with the brain, the immune system, and basically all the biological systems of our body to strongly impact our immediate and long-term health. And those probiotics in Athletic Greens are optimal and vital for microbiotic health. In addition, Athletic Greens contains a number of adaptogens, vitamins, and minerals that make sure that all of my foundational nutritional needs are met, and it tastes great. If you'd like to try Athletic Greens, you can go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman, and they'll give you five free travel packs that make it really easy to mix up Athletic Greens while you're on the road, in the car, on the plane, etc. And they'll give you a year's supply of vitamin D3K2. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Huberman to get the five free travel packs and the year's supply of vitamin D3K2. So for those listening, the um, outer portions of the brain are um, filled with or consist of rather uh, neocortex. So the, the bumpy stuff um, that looks like uh, sea coral, um, some forms of sea coral uh, look like brains or brains look like them. Um, and then underneath uh, reside a lot of the brain structures that control um, what Matt just referred to, um, things controlling mood, hormone output, um, how awake or asleep the brain is. Um, and would you agree that those deeper regions of the brain have in some ways more predictable functions? I mean, that lesions there or stimulation there lead to more predictable outcomes in terms of deficits or um, improvements in function. Yeah, in some way, yes. I mean, the, the deeper parts of the brain tend to be more stereotyped, as in more similar between species than the, the outer surface of the brain. Uh, they're kind of the firmware or the, the housekeeping functions to some degree, body temperature, blood pressure, sex motivation, um, hunger, things that you don't really need to vary dramatically between a fox and a human being. Um, whereas the, the outer, more reasoning functions uh, of problem-solving functions uh, between a fox and a human are vastly different. And so the physical requirements of uh, those brain outputs are different. I think I heard Elon describe it as uh, the human brain is 
I'm essentially a monkey brain with a supercomputer placed on the outside, uh, which um, sparks some interesting ideas about what neocortex is doing. We have all this brain real estate on top of all that more stereotyped function type stuff in the deeper brain. Uh, and it's still unclear what neocortex is doing. In the case of frontal cortex, as you mentioned earlier, it's clear that it's um, providing some shh quieting of, of impulses, um, some context setting, rule setting, context switching, um, all of that uh, makes good sense. But then there are a lot of cortical areas that sure are involved in vision or touch or hearing, but then there's also a lot of real estate that just feels un unexplored. Right. So I'm curious whether or not in your clinical work or work with Neuralink um, or both, whether or not you have ever encountered neurons that do something that's really peculiar and intriguing. Um, and here I'm referring to examples that could be anywhere in the brain. Yeah. Like where you go, wow, like these neurons, when I stimulate them or when they're taken away, lead to something kind of bizarre, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's um, the one that comes immediately to mind is unfortunately in a, a terrible case in kids that have a, a tumor in the, the hypothalamus that lead to uh, what we call gelastic seizures, which is sort of a, an uncontrollable fit of laughter. Uh, there's been cases in the literature where this laughter is so uncontrollable uh, and so pervasive that people suffocate uh, from failing to breathe or they laugh until they pass out. Um, and so, you know, you don't normally think of a deep structure in the brain like the hypothalamus as being involved in the, you know, a, a function like uh, humor. And, and certainly when we think about this kind of laughter in, in the, these kids with tumors, it's um, mirthless laughter is the, the kind of textbook phrase, um, humorless laughter. Uh, it's just a reflexive, um, almost zombie-like behavior. Uh, and it comes from a very small population of neurons deep in the brain. Uh, this is one of the other sort of strange uh, loss of functions, you might say, is, you know, it's, it's nice that you and I can sit here and not have constant uh, disruptive fits of laughter coming out of our bodies. Um, but that, that's a neuronal function. That's, you know, thank goodness, due to neurons properly wired and properly functioning. And any neurons that do anything like this can be broken. Uh, and so we see this in horrifying cases like that from time to time. So I'm starting to sense that there are two broad bins of approaches to augmenting the brain, either to treat disease or for sake of increasing memory, creating super brains, et cetera. One category you alluded to earlier, which is pharmacology. Right. And you specifically mentioned the, the tremendous power that pharmacology holds, right. whether or not it's through psychedelics or through prescription drug or you know, some other compound. The other approach are these little microelectrodes that are extremely strategically placed right. into multiple regions in order to play essentially a concert of electricity that is exactly right to get a quadriplegic moving. Um, that sparks two questions. First of all, is there a role for and is Neuralink interested in combining pharmacology with stimulation? 
So not, not immediately. Right now, we're solely focused on the extremely hard, some might say the hardest problem facing humans right now of decoding the brain through electrical stimulation and recording. Uh, that's, that's enough for us for now. So um, to just uh, give us a bit fuller picture of this, you were talking about a patient who can't move their limbs because they have spinal cord damage. Right. Um, the motor cortex that controls movement is in theory fine. Right. You make a small hole in the skull and through that hole, a robot is going to place electrodes, obviously in motor cortex, but then where, how? Is the idea that you're going to play a concert from different locations, you're gonna hit all the keys on the piano in different combinations and then figure out what can move the limbs. Um, what I'm alluding to here is, I still don't understand how the signals are gonna get out of motor cortex past the lesion and into um, and out to the limbs because the lesion hasn't been dealt with at all in this scenario. So just to, to clarify there, I, I um, should emphasize, we're not in the immediate future talking about reconnecting the brain to the patient's own limbs. That's on the roadmap, but it's way down the, the roadmap a few years. Um, what we're talking about in the immediate future is having the person be able to control electronic devices around them with their motor intentions alone, right? So prosthetic hand and arm or just mouse and, and keys on a- Mouse on and a keys on a keyboard for starters. So you wouldn't see anything in the world move. Uh, as they have an intention, the patient might imagine, say, flexing their fist or moving their wrist. And what would happen on the screen is the mouse would move down and left and click on an icon and bring up their word processor. And then a keyboard at the bottom of the screen would uh, allow them to you know, select letters in sequence and they could type. Uh, this is the easy place to start, uh, easy in quotes. <laughs> I would say because um, the transformation of electrical signals from motor cortex through the brainstem into the spinal cord and out to the muscles is somewhat known right. for, through a hundred years or more of incredible laboratory research. Right. But the transformation, meaning how to take the electrical signals out of motor cortex and put it into a a mouse or a robot arm, it, that's not a trivial problem. I mean, that, right. that's a whole other set of problems, in fact. Well, we're, we're, take, we're unloading some of that difficulty from, uh, from the brain itself, from the brain of the patient, and putting some of that uh, into software. So we're using smarter uh, algorithms to decode the motor intentions out of the brain. We have been able to do this in monkeys really well. So we have, uh, you know, a small army of monkeys playing video games for, uh, you know, smoothie rewards. Um, and they do really well. We, we actually have the world record of uh, bit rate of information coming out of a monkey's brain to, you know, intelligently control a cursor on a screen. Uh, we're doing that better than anyone else. Um, and, you know, again, thanks in no small part due to Krishna Shanoi and his, you know, his lab and the people that have worked for him that have been helping Neuralink. Um, but what you can't do with that monkey is ask him what, what he's thinking. You can't ask him. Well, you can ask him, but he, you won't get a very interesting answer. <laughs> you can't tell him to try something different. You can't tell him to, hey, you know, try the shoulder on this. Oh, hey, try the other hand and see if there's some cross-body uh, neuron firing that, that gives you a useful signal. Once we get to people, uh, we expect to see what they've seen when they've done similar work in academic labs, which is the, the human can work with you to vastly accelerate this process and get much more interesting results. So one of the things uh, out, of, out of Stanford recently is uh, 
there was a lab that uh, with Krishna and Jamie Henderson and, and other people decode speech out of the hand movement area in the brain. So uh, what we know is that there are, you know, multitudes of useful signals in each area of the brain that we've looked at so far. They just tend to be highly expressed for, say, hand movement in the hand area, but that doesn't mean only hand movement in the hand area. Okay, so here's the confidence test. Uh, there's a long history, uh, dating back really prior to the 1950s, of scientists doing experiments on themselves. Sure. Uh, not because they are reckless, but because they want the exact sorts of information that you're talking about. Right. The ability to really understand how intention and awareness of goals can shape outcomes in biology. If that is vague to people listening, what I mean here is that for many, probably hundreds of years, if not longer, scientists have taken the drugs they've studied or stimulated their own brain or done things to really try and get a sense of what the animals they work on or the patients they work on might be experiencing. Psychiatrists are sort of famous for this, by the way. Right. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but psychiatrists are known to try the drugs that they administer. Right. And some people would probably imagine that's a good thing, um, just so that the clinicians could have empathy for the sorts of side effects and not so great effects of some of these drugs that they administer to, to patients. But the confidence test I present you is, would you be willing or are you willing, if allowed, to have these electrodes implanted into your motor cortex? Yeah. You're not a quadriplegic. Right. You can move your limbs. Yeah. But given the state of the technology at Neuralink now, would you do that? Or maybe in the next couple of years, if you were allowed, would you be willing to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And be the person to say, hey, turn up the stimulation over there. I feel like I want to reach for the cup right. with that robotic arm, but I'm, I'm feeling kind of some resistance because it's exactly that kind of experiment done on a, a person who can move their limbs and who deeply understands the technology and the goals of the experiment that I would argue actually stands to advance the technology fastest sure. as opposed to putting the electrodes first into somebody who um, is impaired at a number of levels and then trying to think about why things aren't working. Right. Right. And again, you know, this is all with the, the goal of, of reversing paralysis in mind. Um, but would you implant yourself with these microelectrodes? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would be excited to do that. I think for the first iteration of the device, it probably wouldn't be very meaningful. It wouldn't be very useful because I can still move my limbs and our first outputs from this are things that I can do just as easily with my hands, right? Moving a mouse, typing in a keyboard. Um, we are necessarily making this device as a medical device for starters, for people with bad medical problems and no good options. Um, it wouldn't really make sense for an able-bodied person to get one in the near term. It, uh, as the technology develops and we make devices specifically designed to perform functions that can't be done even by an able-bodied person, uh, say, eventually refine the technique to get to the point where you can type faster uh, with your mind and one of these devices than you can with text-to-speech uh, or speech-to-text and your fingers. That's a use case that makes sense for someone like me to get it. It doesn't really make sense for me to you know, get one when it allows me to, you know, use a mouse slightly worse than I can with my hand currently. 
Um, that said, the safety of the device, I would absolutely vouch for uh, from you know the hundreds of surgeries that I've personally done with this. Uh, I, I think it's much safer than many of the industry standard FDA approved uh, surgeries that I routinely do uh, on, on patients that you know, are, are, no one even thinks twice about their standard of care. Uh, Neuralink has already reached, in my mind, uh, a safety threshold that is far beyond uh, a commonly accepted safety uh, threshold. Along the lines of augmenting one's biological function or functions in the world, I think now's the appropriate time to talk about um, the small lump uh, <laughs> present in the top of your hand. For those listening, not watching, there's a, it looks like a, a small lump between um, Dr. McDougall's um, forefinger and thumb or index finger and thumb um, placed on skin on the top of his hand. Um, you've had this for some years now because we've known yeah. each other for, gosh, probably seven years now or yeah. so. And you've always had it in the time that I've known you. What is that lump um, and why did you put it in there? Yeah. So it's a, a small uh, writable RFID tag. What's an RFID? What does RFID stand for? Yeah, radio frequency identification. Um, and so it's just a very small implantable uh, chip that wireless devices can uh, temporarily power. If you approach an antenna, uh, they can power and send a small amount of data back and forth. So uh, most phones have the capability of reading and writing to this chip. Um, for years, it, uh, it let me into my house. It unlocked a deadbolt on my front door. Um, for some years, it unlocked the doors at Neuralink and let me through you know, the, the various uh, locked doors inside the building. Um, it is writable. I can write a small amount of data to it. And so for some, some years in early, uh, the early days of crypto, I had a crypto private key written on it. Uh, to store a, a cryptocurrency that I thought was, you know, a dead offshoot of one of the main uh, cryptocurrencies after it had forked. And so I put the private wallet key on there and forgot about it and remembered a few years later that it was there and went and checked and it was worth, you know, a few thousand dollars more than when I had <laughs> left it on there. So that was a nice finding change in the sofa in the 21st century. And then when you say you read it, you're essentially taking a, a phone or other device and scanning it over the Right. The, RF, the the um, lump in your hand, so right. to speak, yep. and then it can read the data from there. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, what other sorts of things could one put into uh, the, these RFIDs in theory, and how long can they stay in there before you need to take them out and um, yeah and uh, recharge them or replace them? Well, the, these are passive. They're coated in uh, biocompatible glass, and as an extra, I'm a rock climber, and so I was worried about that glass shattering uh, during rock climbing. I additionally coated them in another ring of silicone uh, before implanting that. So it's, it's pretty safe. They're passive. There's no battery. There's no uh, active electronics in them. So they could last the rest of my life. I don't think I'd ever have to remove it for any reason. You know, at some point, the, the technology is always improving. So I might remove it and upgrade it. Um, that's not inconceivable. Already, there's, you know, 10x more storage versions available. That could be a, a drop-in replacement for this if I ever remove it. Um, but you know, the, it it has a small niche uh, use case, and it's an interesting proof of concept tiptoeing towards the concept that you mentioned of you know you have to be willing to go through the things that you're suggesting to your patients. 
uh, in order to you know, say with a straight face that you think this is a reasonable thing to do. Um, so a small subcutaneous implant in the hand, it's a little different than a brain implant, but. Yeah, what's involved in getting that um, RFID chip into the hand? Is it, um, I'm assuming it's an outpatient procedure. Presumably you did it on yourself. Yeah, yeah, th this was a kitchen table kind of procedure. Um, Any anesthetic or is, or no? You know, I, um, I've seen people do this with uh, lidocaine injection. I, for my money, I think a lidocaine injection is probably as painful as just doing the procedure. Just a little cut in that thin skin on the top of the hand. Right. Some people are cringing right now. Other people are saying, <laughs> I want one because you'll never, have to, never worry about losing your keys Yeah. or well, passwords. I, I actually would right. like it for passwords because I'm, I'm dreadfully bad at uh, remembering passwords. I have to put them in places uh, all over the place. And then it's like, I'm like that kid in, um, that, remember that movie Stand By Me where the yeah. kid hides the pennies under the, the porch and then right. loses the map. Yeah. <laughs> Spends all summer trying to find them. <laughs> so I can relate. Uh, yeah. So a little, it was just a little slit and then put in there. No right. local immune response. No, nope. no pus, uh, no all, swelling. All the no. materials are completely uh, biocompatible. They're on the surface exposed to the body. So no, no bad reaction. It healed up, you know, in days and it was fine. Very cool. Um, since we're on video here, maybe can you just uh, maybe sure. raise it and show us? Yeah. yeah. So, so were you not to point out uh, that little lump? I, I wouldn't have known to to ask about it. But right. and uh, any other members of your family have have these? <laughs> A few years after having this and seeing the convenience of me being able to open the door without keys, uh, my wife insisted that I put one in her as well. So she's walking around with one. Fantastic. We consider them our sort of our, our version of wedding rings. <laughs> Love it. Well, it's certainly um, more permanent than wedding rings in, in, in some sense. Um, I can't help but ask this question, even though it might seem a little bit off topic, as long as we're talking about implantable devices and um, Bluetooth and uh, RFID chips in the body, I get asked a lot about um, the safety or lack thereof of a Bluetooth headphones. Mm. Um, you work on the brain, you're a brain surgeon. Sure. Um, that's valuable real estate in there. Yeah. And um, you understand about electromagnetic fields and sure. um, any discussion about EMFs immediately puts us in the category of, uh-oh, like let's get their <laughs> tinfoil hats. And yet I've been researching EMFs for a future episode of the podcast. Sure. And EMFs are a, a real thing. That's not a, a valuable statement. Everything's a real thing at some level, even an idea. But there does seem to be some evidence that electromagnetic fields of sufficient strength can alter the function of, maybe the health of, but the function of neural tissue, given that neural tissue is electrically signaling among itself. Sure. So um, I'll just ask this in a very straightforward way. Do you use Bluetooth headphones or wired sure. headphones? Yeah, Bluetooth. And you're not uh, worried about any kind of uh, EMF fields across the skull? No, I mean, I, I think the energy levels involved are so tiny that, uh, you know, ionizing radiation aside, we're, we're way out of the realm of ionizing radiation that people would worry about, um, you know, tumor causing EMF fields. Um, uh, even just the electromagnetic field itself, uh, as is very well described in a Bluetooth um, frequency range, it, the power levels are tiny. Uh, in these devices. And so, you know, we are awash in these signals, whether you use Bluetooth headphones or not. Uh, for that matter, you're you're getting bombarded with ionizing radiation in a very tiny amount, no matter where you live uh, on earth, unless you live under huge amounts of water, um, it's unavoidable. Uh, and so I think you just have to trust that your body 
uh, has the DNA repair mechanisms that it needs to deal with the constant bath of ionizing radiation that you're in uh, as a result of being in the universe and exposed to cosmic rays. Um, in terms of electromagnetic fields, it's just, it's, um, you know, the energy levels are way, way out of the range where I would be worried about this. What about heat? Um, you know, I don't use the earbuds any longer uh, for a couple of reasons. Once, as, as you know, I take a lot of supplements and I reached into my left pocket once and swallowed a handful <laughs> of supplements that included a, a Bluetooth, no. uh, a, a AirPod Pro. Um, I knew it, I swallowed it the moment after I gulped it down. By the way, folks, please don't do this. It, it was not a good idea. It, was, well, it wasn't an idea, it was a mistake. And, but I could see it on my phone as registering there. Never saw it again, so I'm assuming it's no longer in my body, but um, uh, anyway, there's a bad joke there uh, to be sure. Um, <laughs> but it, in any event, I, I tend to lose them or misplace them. So that's the main reason. I, but I did notice when I used them that there's some heat generated there. Mm -hmm. um, I also am not convinced that plugging your ears all day long is good. There's some ventilation through the, through the sinus systems that include sure. the ears. So uh, it sounds to me like you're not concerned about the use of, of um, earbuds, but um, what about heat near the brain? I mean, there's the, the cochlea, the, the auditory mechanisms that sit pretty close to the surface there. Um, heat and neural tissue are not friends. Sure. Um, I'd much rather get my brain cold than hot yeah. um, in terms of keeping the cells healthy and alive. Um, should we be thinking about the heat effects of some of these devices or other things? Is there anything we're overlooking? Well, think about it this way. The, uh, it, I use cars as an ana analogy a lot and you know, mostly internal combustion engine cars. So these analogies are going to start to be uh, foreign and useless for another generation of people that grew up in the era of electric cars. But uh, using cars as a, as a platform to talk about uh, fluid cooling systems, your body has a massive distributed fluid cooling system similar to a car's radiator. Uh, you're pumping blood all around your body all the time at a very strictly controlled temperature. That blood carries, a, it's mostly water, so it carries a huge amount of the heat um, away or cold away from any area of the body that's focused uh, heating uh, or focused cooling. So you could put an ice cube on your skin uh, until it completely melts away and the blood is going to bring heat back to that area. You can put, you can stand in the sun under uh, much more scary uh, heating rays from the sun itself that contain UV radiation. Uh, that's, that's definitely damaging your DNA. Um, if you're looking for things to be afraid of, the sun is a good one. No, you're talking to the guy that tells everybody to get sunlight in their eyes every morning, <laughs> but I don't want people to get burned or, or give themselves skin cancer. I, I encourage people to protect their skin accordingly. And, and different individuals require different levels of protection from the sun. Sure. Some people do very well in a lot of sunshine, never get basal cell or anything like that. Some people, and it's not just people with very fair skin, um, a minimum of sun exposure can cause um, some issues. And sure. here I'm talking about sun exposure to the skin uh, of course, staring at the sun is a bad idea. I never but, recommend but thinking about that. the sun just as a heater, uh, you know, for, for a moment uh, to compare it with Bluetooth headphones, uh, your body is very capable of carrying that heat away and, and dissipating it, you know, via sweat evaporation uh, or, um, you know, temperature equalization. So any heat that's locally generated in the ear 
you know, one, there's a pretty large bony barrier there, but two, there's a ton of blood flow in the scalp and in the head in general, and definitely in the brain that's going to regulate that temperature. So I think uh, certainly there can be a tiny temperature variation, but I doubt uh, very seriously that it's enough to cause a significant problem. I'd like to go back to brain augmentation. Um, you've made very clear that one of the first goals for Neuralink is to get quadriplegics walking again. And again, what a marvelous goal that is. And I certainly hope you guys succeed. Well, again, just, just to be very clear, the first step is we, we aren't reconnecting the patient's own muscle right. system right. to their motor cortex. Uh, allowing them, um, excuse me, uh, agency over the movement of things in the world. Yes. Um, and, and eventually their body. And you're exactly right. Yeah. Eventually their body. We would, we would love to do that. And we've done a lot of work on, uh, developing a system for stimulating the spinal cord itself. Uh, and so that gets to the question that you, uh, that you asked a few minutes ago of how do you reconnect a motor cortex to the rest of the body? Well, if you can bypass the damaged area of the spinal cord and have an implant in the spinal cord itself connected to an implant in the brain and have them talking to each other, you can take the perfectly intact motor signals out of the, the motor cortex and send them to the spinal cord, which most of the wiring should be intact in the spinal cord below the level of, say, the, the injury caused by a car accident or motorcycle accident or gunshot wound or whatever. And uh, it should be possible to reconnect the brain to the body in that way. Mm -hmm. So not out of the realm of possibility that, you know, in some small number of years that uh, Neuralink will be able to reconnect somebody's own body to their brain. And here I just want to uh, flag the... Um, hundred years or more of incredible work by basic scientists. Um, the names that I learned about in my textbooks as a graduate student were like Georgeopoulos, and um, that won't mean anything to anyone unless you're a neuroscientist, but Georgeopoulos um, performed some of the first uh, sophisticated recordings out of motor cortex, just simply asking like, what sorts of electrical patterns are present in motor cortex as an animal or human moves a limb? Right. Um, Krishna Shinoy being another um, major pioneer in this area and, and many others. Right. And just really highlighting the fact that basic research where a exploration of neural tissue is carried out at the level of anatomy and physiology really sets down the pavement on the runway to do the sorts of um, big clinical uh, expeditions that you all at Neuralink are doing. Yeah, it, it can't be said enough that, you know, we, broadly speaking, in the industry sometimes are and sometimes stand on the shoulders of academic giants. They were the real pioneers that they, they were involved in the grind for years in an unglorious, uh, unglamorous way. No stock options. <laughs> no stock <laughs> options. Uh, and, you know, the reward uh, for all the hard work is a paper at the end of the day that is read by, you know, dozens of people. And so, you know, they were selfless uh, academic researchers that, that made all this possible. And we all, humanity and Neuralink, I owe them a massive debt of gratitude for all the hard work that they've done and continue to do. I agree. Along the lines of augmentation, early on in some of the public discussions about Neuralink that I overheard between Elon and various podcast hosts, et cetera, uh, there were some um, lofty ideas set out that I think are still very much um, in play in people's minds. Things like, for instance, electrical stimulation of the hippocampus 
that you so appropriately have worn on your shirt today. <laughs> uh, so for those, yeah, yeah beautiful, um, it looks like either, a, it looks like a Golgi or a Cajal rendition of the hippocampus. Yeah. Um, uh, translates to seahorse and it's an area of the brain that's involved in learning and memory and um, among other things. There was this idea thrown out that a chip or chips could be implanted in the hippocampus that would um, allow um, greater than normal memory abilities. Perhaps that's mm -hmm. one idea. Sure. Another idea that I heard about in these discussions was, uh, for instance, that you would have some chips in your brain and I would have some chips in my brain and you and I could just sit here look at e looking at each other or not, nodding or shaking our heads and essentially hear each other's thoughts, sure. which sounds outrageous, but of course, why not? Wh why should we constrain ourselves um, to, uh, as our good friend Eddie Chang and uh, who's a neurosurgeon who was already on this podcast once before said, speech is just the shaping of breath as it exits our lungs. Right. Incredible, really, when you think about it. But we don't necessarily need speech to hear and understand each other's thoughts because the neural signals that produce that shaping of the lungs come from some intention. You know, I have some idea, although it might not seem like it, about what I'm going to say next. So is that possible that we could sit here and just hear each other's thoughts? And, um, yeah. and also, how would we restrict what the other person could hear? <laughs> yeah, well, so absolutely. I mean, th think about the fact that we could do this right now if you pulled out your phone and started texting me on my phone and I looked down and started texting you, we would be communicating without looking at each other or talking. Uh, shifting that function from a phone to an implanted device, it requires no magic uh, advance, no leap forward. It's technology we already know how to do. Uh, if we say put a device in that allows you to control a keyboard and a mouse, which is our stated intention for our first human clinical trial. Or, I, and again, uh, I'm deliberately interrupting, or I can text an entire team of people sure. simultaneously, and sure. they can text me. And in theory, I could have a bunch of thoughts and 5, 10, 50 people could hear. Right. Um, or um, probably more to their preference, um, they could talk to me. Yeah. And, and so, you know, texting each other with our brains is maybe an uninspiring rendition of this, but it, it's not uh, very difficult to imagine the implementation of the same device in a more verbally focused area of the brain that allows you to more naturally speak the thoughts that you're thinking and have me have them rendered into speech that I can hear, uh, you know, maybe via a bone conducting implant. Uh, so silently hear. Mm -hmm. Or, or not silently. Like I could, let's say I was getting off the plane and I wanted to let somebody at home know that I had arrived. I might be able to think in my mind, think their first name, which might cue up a, a device that would then play my voice to sure. them and say, yeah. just got off the plane, I'm gonna grab my bag and then I'll give you a call. Right, on their home Alexa. <laughs> right. So that's all possible, meaning we know the origin of the neural signals right. that gives rise to speech. We know the different mechanical and neural apparati, like the cochlea, um, eardrums, et cetera, um, that transduce sound waves into electrical signals. Right. Essentially all the pieces are known. We're just really talking about re like- Refining it. Yeah, refining it and reconfiguring it. it it's, it's, I mean, it's not an easy problem, but it's really an engineering problem rather than a neuroscience problem. For that, for that use case, you know, nonverbal communication, you might say, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's a solved problem in a very crude, disjointed way. Uh, so some labs have solved 
you know, part one of it, some labs have solved part two of it. There are products out there that solve, you know, say the implanted bone conduction part of it for the, for the deaf community. Um, there are, there are no implementations I'm aware of that are pulling all that together into one uh, product. That's a streamlined package from end to end. Uh, I think that's a few years down the road. And we, I think have some hints of how easily or poorly people will adapt to these, um, let's call them novel transformations. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I was on Instagram and I saw a post from a woman, um, her name is Kassar Jacobson, and she is deaf since birth and can sign and to some extent can read lips, but she was um, discussing uh, neosensory. So this is a, uh, a device that translates sound in the environment into touch sensations mm. on her hand or wrist. Um, she's a, uh, a admirer of birds and all things avian. And um, I reached out to her about this device because I'm very curious because this is a very interesting use case of, of uh, neuroplasticity in the sensory domain, sure. which is a fascination of mine. And she said that, um, Yes, indeed, it, it afforded her novel experiences. Now when walking past, say, pigeons in the park, if they were to make some whatever sounds that um, pigeons make, right. that she would feel those sounds and that indeed it enriched her experience of those birds um, in ways that obviously it wouldn't otherwise. I haven't followed up with her recently to find out whether or not ongoing use of the neosensory has made for a better, worse, or kind of... Um, equivalent experience of avians in the world, which for her is, is a near obsession. Um, so she delights in them. Um, what are your thoughts about kind of peripheral devices like that periphery, peripheral meaning outside of the, the skull, um, no requirement for a, uh, a surgery. Do you think that there's a more immediate or even a, uh, a, a just generally potent um, use case for peripheral devices? And do you think that those are going to be used uh, more readily before the kind of brain surgery requiring devices are used? Yeah. Um, certainly the barrier to entry is lower. The barrier to adoption is low. Um, you know, if you're making a, a tactile glove, that's hard to say no to when you can slip it on and slip it off and not, not have to get your skin cut at all. Um, what you know, again, there's no perfect measure of the efficacy of a device, of one device compared to another, especially across modalities. But one, one way that you can start to compare apples to oranges is bit rate, you know, useful information in or out of the brain um, as, you know, transformed into digital data. Uh, and so you can put a single number on that. And you have to ask when you look at a device like that is, what is the bit rate in? What is the bit rate out? How much information are you able to usefully convey into the system and get out of the system into the body, uh, into the brain? And uh, I think there's what we've seen in the early stabs at this is that there's a very low threshold uh, for bit rate on some of the devices that are trying to avoid, you know, a direct brain surgery. Could, could you... Um perhaps say what you just said, but in a way that um, maybe people who aren't as familiar with thinking about bit rates sure. might, um, might, might be able yeah. to digest. Uh, sure. There I'm, I'm referring to myself. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I understand bit rate. I understand that adding a new channel of information is 
just that, adding information. Are you saying it's important to understand whether or not that new information provides for novel function or experience and to, and, um, to what extent is the, the newness of that valid and adaptive? Well, I'm saying more, uh, it's hard to measure utility in this space. It's hard to you know, put a single metric, a single number on how useful a technology is. One crude way to try to get at that is, is uh, bit rate. Think of it as, as back in the days of dial-up modems. The bit rate of your modem was, you know, 56K or 96. I can still hear the sound of the dial-up in the background. (laughs) Yeah. That was a bit rate that thankfully kept steadily going up and up and up. Your your, uh, internet service provider gives you a number uh, that is the maximum usable data that you can transmit back and forth from the internet. Uh, That's a useful way to think about these assistive devices. How much information are you able to get in into the brain and out of the brain usefully. Um, and right now that, that number is uh, very small, even compared to the old modems. Uh, but you have to ask yourself when you're looking at a technology, what's the ceiling? What's the theoretical maximum? And for a lot of these technologies, the theoretical maximum is, is uh, very low, disappointingly low, even if it's perfectly executed and, and perfectly um, developed as a technology. And I think the thing that attracts a lot of us to a technology like Neuralink is that the ceiling is incredibly high. There's no obvious reason that you can't interface with millions of neurons uh, as this technology is refined uh, and and developed further. So um, that's the kind of wide band, you know, high bandwidth brain interface that you want to develop if you're talking about um, an, a semantic prosthetic uh, and. AI assistant to your cognitive abilities. Uh, you know, the more sci-fi things that we think about in the coming decades. Um, so uh, the, it's an important caveat when you're evaluating these technologies. You really want it to be something that you can expand off into the sci-fi. So let's take this a step further, uh, because as you're saying this, I'm realizing that people have been doing exactly what Neuralink is trying to do now for a very long time. Let me give you an example. Um, People who are blind, who have no pattern vision, have used canes for a very long time. Now, the cane is not um, a chip. It's not an electrode. It's not neosensory. (laughs) None of that stuff. What it is, is essentially a uh, a stick that has um, an interface with a surface. So it's swept back and forth across the ground. And translating what would otherwise be visual cues into somatosensory cues. Sure. And we know that blind people are very good at understanding, um, even when they are approaching, say, a curb edge, because they are integrating that information from the tip of the cane um, up through their somatosensory cortex and their motor cortex with other things like the changes in the the wind and the sound as they round a corner. And um, here I'm imagining a, like a corner in San Francisco downtown when as you, as you get to the corner, it, it's a completely different set of auditory cues. And very often we know, and this is because my laboratory worked on visual repair for a long time. I talked to a lot of blind people who use different devices to navigate the world that they aren't aware of the fact that they're integrating these other cues, but they nonetheless do them subconsciously. Right. Um, and in doing so, get pretty good at navigating with a cane. Right. Now, a cane isn't perfect, but you can imagine the other form of, of navigating as a blind person 
which is to just uh, attach yourself or attach to you another nervous system. The best that we know being a dog, a sighted dog sure. that can cue you again with a, um, stopping at a curb's edge or even if there are some individuals that might seem a little sketchy. Dogs are also very good at sensing um, different uh, arousal states and others, threat, danger. Sure. I mean, they're exquisite at it, right? So here, what we're really talking about is taking a, a cane or a, another biological system, essentially a whole nervous system and saying, this other nervous system's job is to get you to navigate more safely through the world. Right. In some sense, what Neuralink is trying to do is that, but with robotics to insert them and chips, which raises the, the, the question, People are going to say, finally, a question. The question is this. We hear about BMI, brain-machine interface, which right. is really what Neuralink specializes in. We also hear about AI, another example where there's great promise and great fear. Right. We hear about machine learning as well. To what extent can these brain-machine interfaces learn the same way a seeing-eye dog would learn, but unlike a seeing-eye dog, continue to learn over time and get better and better and better because it's also listening to the nervous system that it's trying to support. Right. Put simply, what is the role for AI and machine learning in the type of work that you're doing? That's a great question. I, th I think, you know, it goes both ways. Basically what you're doing is taking a very crude software intelligence. I would say not exactly a full, full blown AI, but some well-designed software that can adapt to changes in firing of the brain and you're coupling it with another form of intelligence, a human intelligence, and you're uh, allowing the two to learn each other. So undoubtedly the human that has a Neuralink device will get better at using it over time. Undoubtedly the uh, software that the Neuralink engineers uh, have written uh, will adapt to the firing patterns uh, that, that the device is able to record and over time focus in uh, on meaningful signals toward movement, right? So if uh, a neuron is fire, a high firing rate when you intend to move the mouse cursor up and to the right, it doesn't know that when it starts. When you first put this in, it's just a random series of signals as far as the chip knows. But you start correlating it with what the person, what you know the person wants to do uh, as expressed in a series of games. So you you assume that you know, uh, that the person wants to move the mouse on the screen to the target that's shown because you tell them that's the goal. And so you start correlating the activity uh, that you record when they're moving toward an up and right target on a screen with that firing pattern. And similarly for up and left, down and left, down and right. And so you, you develop a model um, semi-intelligently in the software for what the person is intending to do and let the person run wild with it for a while. And they start to get better at using the model presented to them by the, by the software as expressed by the mouse moving or not moving properly on the screen, right? So it's, imagine a scenario where you're asking somebody to play piano, but the, the sound that comes out of each key randomly shifts over time. Um, very difficult problem, but a human brain is good enough uh, with the aid of software to, to solve that problem and, and map well enough to a semi-stable state that they're going to know how to use that mouse even when they, say, turn the device off for the night, come back to it the next day, mm -hmm. and some of the signals have shifted. So you're describing this. I'm, I'm recalling a recent experience. I got one of these um, rowers 
you mm-hmm. know, for, to um, exercise. Um, and I am well aware that there's a proper row stroke and there's a uh, improper row stroke. And um, most everybody, including me, who's never been coached in rowing, um, gets on this thing and pushes with their legs and pulls with their arms and back. And it's some mix of incorrect and maybe a smidgen of correct type um, execution. There's a function within the rower that allows you, or in this case me, to play a game where you can actually, um, every row stroke you generate um, arrows on, toward a dartboard. Mm. And it knows whether or not you're generating the appropriate forces at the given um, segment of the row, the initial pull when you're leaning back, et cetera, and adjusts the trajectory of the arrow so that when you do a proper row stroke, it gets closer to a bullseye. Mm-hmm. And it's very satisfying sure. because you now have a visual feedback that's unrelated to this, um, the kinds of instructions that one would expect, like, oh, you know, hinge your hip a bit more or, you know, splay your knees a bit more, or reach more with your arms or pull first with your back. All the rowers are probably cringing as I say this because <laughs> they're realizing the, uh, what is exactly the point, which is I don't know how to row, but over time, simply by paying attention to whether or not the arrow is hitting the bullseye or not more or less frequently, you can improve your row stroke and get, um, as I understand, pretty close to optimal row stroke um, in the same way that if you had a coach there telling you, hey, do this and do that. What we're really talking about here is neurobiofeedback. Sure. So is that analogy similar to what you're describing? Yeah, that's a great analogy. Uh, You know, humans are really good at learning how to play games uh, in software. So video games are an awesome platform for us to use as a training environment for people to get better at uh, controlling these things. In fact, it's it's the default and the obvious way to do it uh, is to have people and monkeys play video games. Do you play video games? Yeah, sure. Which uh, video wait, games? Let's see. I, uh, you know, play old ones. I'm a little nostalgic, so uh, I uh, like the old Blizzard games, StarCraft and WarCraft. And oh, my. I don't even know those. I remember the first Apple computers. I, I mean, I go, I, how old are you? Uh, 43. Okay, 47. 44 now as of a few days ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, happy birthday. So nice. we're a little bit offset there. Yeah, I can recall um, Mike Tyson's punch out, like sure, the original sure. Nintendo game, Super Mario game. Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard game. Um, but the game, so the games you're describing, I, I don't recall. That uh, My understanding is that the, the newer games are, are far more sophisticated. In uh, some respects. I, I did recently find time to play Cyberpunk, um, which was really satisfying and maybe appropriate. <laughs> It's a game where the characters are all fully uh, modded out with uh, cybernetic implants. Oh, perfect. Um, but, you know, the, the root of the game is run around and shoot things. So uh, maybe not so different from, you know, Duck Hunt or whatever from our childhoods. The reason I ask about video games is um, there's been some controversy as to whether or not they are making young brains better or worse. Mm. And I think some of the work from Adam Gazzelli's lab at UCSF and other laboratories have shown that actually provided that... Um, Children in particular and adults are also spending time in normal face-to-face, let's call them more traditional uh, face-to-face interactions that uh, video games can actually make um, nervous systems, that is people, uh, much more proficient at learning and motor execution. Sure. Um, Visual detection um, and on and on. Yeah, there's some work uh, showing that surgeons are better if they play video games. Uh, so I try to squeeze some in as a, a, you know, a professional development activity. <laughs> great, great. Well, I'm sure you're getting cheers from the, uh, from those that like video games out there. And um, some of the parents who are trying to get their kids to play fewer video games are, are cringing, but that's okay. We'll let them settle uh, their familial disputes um, among themselves. Let's talk about pigs. Sure. Neuralink has been um, quite generous, I would say, in 
announcing their discoveries and their goals. And I, I want to highlight this because I think it's quite unusual for a company to do this. Um, yeah. I'm probably going to earn a few enemies by saying this. Um, despite the fact that I've always owned Apple devices and I'm from the South Bay, um, you know, the Apple design team is notoriously cryptic about what they're going to do next or when the next phone or computer is going to come out is, is, is vaulted to um, uh, a serious extent. Neuralink has been um, pretty open about their goals right? Um, with the understanding that goals change and have to change. Um, and one of the things that they've done, which I think is marvelous, is they've held um, online symposia where you and some other colleagues of mine from the neuroscience community, Dan Adams, who I have tremendous respect for, and Elon and others um, there at Neuralink have shared some of the progress that they've made in experimental animals. I'm highlighting this because I think um, if one takes a step back, I mean, just for most people to uh, know about and realize that there's experimentation on animals, implantation of electrodes and so on, is itself a pretty bold move because that understandably evokes some strong emotions um, in people. And um, in some people it evokes extremely strong emotions. Sure. Um, Neuralink did one such symposium where they showed implant devices in pigs. Right. Then they did another one, you guys did another one where um, it was implant devices in monkeys. Right. I assume at some point there will be one of these public symposia where um, the implant devices will be in a human. What was the rationale for using pigs? Um, I'm told pigs are very nice creatures. Yeah. I'm told that they are quite smart. Right. Um, and for all my years as a neuroscientist and having worked admittedly on every species from um, mice to cuttlefish to humans to hamsters to, uh, you know, I confess, um, various carnivore species, uh, which I no longer do. I work on humans now for various reasons. I never in my life thought I would see a implant device in the cortex of a pig. Sure. Why work on pigs? Yeah. Well, let me, let me say first, uh, Neuralink is almost entirely composed of animal loving people. Uh, the people at Neuralink are obsessive animal lovers. Uh, there are signs up all around the office, you know, spontaneously put up by people uh, within the organization, you know, talking about how we want to save animals, we want to protect animals. If there was any possible way to help people the way we want to help people without using animals in our research, we would do it. Um, it's just not known how to do that right now. And so we are completely restricted to making advances uh, to getting a device approval through the FDA by first showing that it's incredibly safe uh, in animals. Uh, and so- As is the case for any medical advancement, essentially. Right, exactly. I mean, I do want to highlight this, that the, the FDA and the other governing bodies um, uh, oversee these types of experiments and ensure that they're done with a minimum of discomfort to the animals, of course. But um, I think there's an inherent speciesism right. in, uh, in most humans, not all. Some people truly see equivalence between a, a lizard and a human, lizard life being equivalent to human life. Most human beings, I think, in particular human beings who themselves or who have loved ones that are suffering from diseases that they uh, hope could be cured at some right. point. Um, view themselves as specious and feel that if you have to work on a biological system in order to solve the problem, um, working on 
um, non-human animals first makes sense right. to most people. Sure. But certainly there's a category of people that feels very strongly in the opposite direction. Sure. And, you know, I think we would probably be having a very different conversation around animal research if uh, we weren't, you know, we as a species, we as a culture, weren't just casually slaughtering millions of animals to eat them um, every single day. Uh, and so that is a background against which the, the relatively minuscule number of animals used in research, uh, it, it becomes almost impossible to understand why someone would point to that ridiculously small number of animals uh, used in research when the vast, vast majority of uh, animals that humans use and end their lives are, are done for food. Or for fur. Or for fur yeah. or, or these other reasons that people, you know, have historically used animals. So we, in, in that context, uh, we do animal research because we have to. There's no other way around it. If tomorrow uh, laws were changed and the FDA said, okay, you can do some of this early experimentation in willing human participants, that would be a very interesting option. I think there would be a lot of people that would step up and say, yes, I'm, I'm willing to participate in early stage clinical research. You already volunteered. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, I wouldn't be alone. And that, you know, is a potential way that animals could maybe be spared uh, being unwilling participants in this. Um, on that note, to whatever extent possible, I think Neuralink goes um, really, really far, much, much farther than anyone I've ever heard of, any organization I've ever heard of, any, anything I've ever seen uh, to give the animals agency in every aspect of the research. Um, we have just an incredible team uh, of people looking out for the animals and trying to design the experiments such that they're as purely opt-in as humanly possible. Uh, no animal is ever compelled uh, to participate in experiments beyond the surgery itself. Um, so if, say, on a given day, our, our star monkey pager doesn't want to play video games for smoothie, no one forces them to ever. This is a very important point, and I want to um, cue people to really what Matt is saying here. Um, obviously, the animals are being researched on um, for neural links, so they don't get to opt into opt out of the experiment. Right. Um, but what he's saying is that they play these games during which neural signals are measured from the brain because they have electrodes implanted in their brain through a surgery that, thankfully, to the brain is painless. Right. No pain receptors in the brain, um, and are playing for reward. This is very different, very different than the typical scenario in laboratories around the world where people experiment on mice, monkeys, some cases pigs or other species in which the typical arrangement is to water deprive the animals. We never do that. And then have the animals work for their daily ration of water. Right. Um, and some people are hearing this and probably think, wow, that's barbaric. And here I'm not trying to point uh, fingers at the people doing that kind of work. I just think it's important that people understand how the work is done. Right. In order to motivate an animal to play a video game, right. depriving them of something that they yearn for is a very efficient way to do that. We don't do that. We, they have free and full access to food this entire time. So they aren't hungry, they aren't thirsty. The only thing that would motivate them is if they want a treat extra to their normal rations. Um, but there's, there's never any deprivation. There's never any adverse negative stimuli that pushes them to do anything. I must say I'm impressed by that decision. 
um, because uh, training animals to do tasks in laboratory settings is very hard. And the reason so many researchers have defaulted to water deprivation and, and having animals work for a ration of water is because frankly, it works. Right. It allows people to finish their PhD or their postdoc more quickly than having to uh, wait around um, and try and figure out why uh, their monkey isn't working that day. In fact, having known a number of people who've done these kinds of experiments, although we've never done them in my lab, um, my monkey isn't working today is uh, a common uh, gripe among graduate students and postdocs right. who do this kind of work. Um, and for people who work on mice. Okay, so this is um, uh, very important information to get across. Um, and there's no public relations statement uh, woven into this. This is just, we're talking about the nature of the research, um, but I think it is important that people are aware of this. Yeah, um, it's one of the one of the underappreciated innovations out of Neuralink is how far the animal care team has been able to, to move in the direction of humane treatment of these guys. Wonderful. Well, as an animal lover myself, I can only say wonderful. Why pigs? Yeah, pigs are, you know, they're actually fairly commonly used in medical device research. Um, more, you know, in the cardiac area, their hearts are, you know, somewhat similar to human hearts. How big are these pigs? I've seen little pigs and I've seen big pigs. Yeah, there, there's a range. There's a bunch of different varieties of pig. There's a bunch of different species that, um, you know, you can optimize for different uh, characteristics. There's mini pigs, there's, um, you know, Yorkshires, there's, uh, a lot of different kind of pigs that we use in different contexts um, when we're trying to optimize a certain characteristic. Um, so yeah, uh, the pigs are, we don't necessarily need them to be smart or task performers. Although occasionally we have, you know, trained them to walk on a treadmill um, when we're studying how their limbs move uh, for some of our spinal cord research. Um, but we're not, you know, recording interesting say cognitive data out of their minds. They're really just a, a biological platform with a skull that's close enough in size and shape to humans to be a valid platform to study the safety of the device. Unlike a monkey or a human, a pig, I don't think can reach out and, and hit a, right. a button or a lever. Exactly. How are they signaling that they um, saw or um, sensed something? Yeah, so again, the, the pigs are really just a safety platform to say the device is safe to implant. It doesn't you know, break down or cause any kind of toxic reaction. The monkeys are where we are really doing our heavy lifting in terms of ensuring that we're getting good signals out of the device, that, that what we expect to see in humans is validated on the functional level in, in monkeys first. Let's talk about the skull. Yeah. Uh, years ago, you and I were enjoying a conversation about these very sorts of things that we're discussing today. And you said, you know, the skull is actually a pretty lousy uh, biological adaptation. Far better would be a, a titanium plate, <laughs> you know, spoken like a true neurosurgeon uh, with a uh, radio receiver implanted in his hand. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, drilling through the skull with a two millimeter hole, certainly don't do this at home, folks. Um, please don't, don't do this. But um, that, yes, that's a small um, entry site, but I think most people cringe when they hear about that or think about that. Sure. And it obviously has to be done by a neurosurgeon with all the appropriate um, uh, environmental conditions in place to limit infection. What did you mean when you said that the skull is a poor adaptation and a titanium plate would be better? And in particular, what does that mean 
in reference to things like traumatic brain injury. I mean, are human beings unnecessarily vulnerable at the level of traumatic brain injury because our skulls are just not um, hard enough? You know, maybe I'm being too harsh about the skull. The skull is uh, very good at what it does given the tools that we are working with as biological organisms that develop in our mother's uterus. Um, the skull is, you know, usually the appropriate size. It's one of the hardest things in your body. Um, that said, there are a couple puzzling vulnerabilities. Uh, some of the thinnest bone in the skull is in the temporal region. This is, uh, you know, neurosurgeons will all know that I'm heading toward uh, a feature that sometimes darkly is called God's little joke, where the very thin bone of the, of the temporal um, part of the skull has one of the largest arteries uh, that goes to the lining of the brain right attached to the inside of it. And so this, this bone just to the side of your eye tends to fracture if you're struck there. And the sharp edges of that fractured bone very often cut an artery called the middle meningeal artery that leads to a big blood clot that crushes the brain. That's how a lot of people with, um, you know, otherwise would be a relatively minor injury end up dying. Uh, is this large blood clot developing from high pressured arterial blood that crushes the, the brain. Um, and so why would you put the artery right on the inside of the very thin bone that's most likely to fracture? Uh, it's an enduring mystery, but this is probably the most obvious failure mode in, in you know, the design of a human skull. Otherwise, you know, in terms of general impact resistance, I think the brain is a very hard thing to protect and the, the architecture of human anatomy probably, given all other possible architectures that can arise from uh, development, it's not that bad, really. Um, one of the interesting features in terms of shock absorption that hopefully prevents a lot of traumatic brain injury is the fluid sheath around the brain. The, the brain, you may know, is um, it's mostly fat. It floats in salt water in our brains. So our brains are all floating in, in salt water. And so with rapid acceleration, deceleration, that uh, sheath of salt water uh, adds a marvelous protective uh, cushion against development of, you know, bruising of the brain, say, or bleeding in the brain. Um, and so I think uh, for any flaws in the design that do exist, um, you, you can imagine things being a lot worse. And there's probably a lot fewer TBIs than would exist if a human designer was taking a first crack at it. As you described the, the thinness of this temporal bone and the, and the presence of a critical artery just beneath it, um, I'm thinking about most helmets. Um, and here I also wanna cue up the fact that, well, whenever we hear about um, TBI or CTE or brain injury, people always think football hockey, but most traumatic brain injuries are things like car accidents or construction work. Right. And it's not football and hockey. For some reason, football and hockey and boxing get all the attention. Yeah. Um, but my colleagues that work on traumatic brain injury tell me that most of the traumatic brain injury they see is somebody slips at a party and hits their head or, um, uh, you know, is in a car accident or environmental, uh, environmental accidents of various kinds. To my mind, most helmets don't actually cover this region close to the eyes. Yeah. So is there, is, is there also a failure of um, helmet engineering that um, 
you know, I, I can understand why you'd want to have your peripheral vision out the sides of uh, your eyes, uh, periphery of your eyes. But it seems to me if this is such critical real estate, why, why isn't it being better protected? You know, I'm no expert in helmets, but um, I don't think we see a lot of epidural hematomas in sports injuries. Uh, to get this kind of injury, you usually need a really focal blunt trauma, like a, the baseball bat to the head is a classic uh, mechanism of injury uh, that would lead to, to a temporal bone fracture and epidural hematoma. Um, with sports injuries, you know, you don't often see that, especially in football with uh, you know, a, a, f a sharp, sharper uh, object coming in contact with the head. Uh, it's usually another helmet, right, is the, the mechanism of injury. Uh, so I, I, I can't think off the top of my head of an instance of this exact injury type in sports. Mm -hmm. You spent a lot of time poking around in brains of humans. Um, and while I realize this is not your area of expertise, uh, you are somebody who I am aware, you know, cares about his health and the health of your family. And I think generally people's health. Um, when you look out on the landscape of things that people can do and shouldn't do, if their desire is to keep their brain healthy, yeah. do any, um, any, data or any particular practices come to mind? I mean, I think we've all heard the obvious one. Don't, don't get a head injury. Right. If you do get a head injury, make sure it gets treated and don't get a second head injury. Right. But those are sort of duh type um, answers that um, I'm able to give. So I'm curious about the answers that um, perhaps I'm not able to give. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the obvious ones is one that you, you talk about a lot. Um, and I see a lot of the the smoldering wreckage of humanity, you know, in the operating room uh, and in the emergency room for people that come in. Uh, you know, I, I work my practices in San Francisco, right next to the Tenderloin, and so a lot of people that end up coming in from the Tenderloin have been drinking just spectacular amounts of alcohol for a long time, and their brains are, uh, you know, very often on the scans they look like small walnuts inside their empty skull. There's so much atrophy that happens with a, an alcohol-soaked brain chronically uh, that uh, I would say that's you know far and away the most common source of brain damage that many of us just volunteer for, uh, and it's you know when you look at the morbidity, kind of the the human harm in aggregate that's done, it's mystifying that that it's um, not something that we are all paranoid about. We're tr um, people will think that I don't drink at all. I'll occasionally have a drink. I, I could uh, take it or leave it, frankly. If all the alcohol in the plant disappeared, I wouldn't notice. But I, I do occasionally have a drink, maybe one per year or something like that. But I am shocked at um, this current state of affairs around alcohol consumption and advertising, et cetera. When I look at the data, mainly out of the UK Brain Bank, which basically shows that for every drink that one has on a regular basis, when you go from zero to one drink per week, there's more brain atrophy, thinning of the gray matter cortex. Right. You go from one to two, more thinning. You go from two to three. And there's a near linear relationship between the amount that people are drinking and the amount of brain atrophy. Right. And to me, it's like, it's just sort of obvious from the, these large scale studies that, um, as you point out, uh, alcohol atrophies the brain. Yeah. It, it, it kills neurons. Right. And I, I don't have any bias against alcohol or people that drink. I know many of them, but it, does seem to me kind of shocking yeah. um, that we're talking about, you know, the resveratrol and red wine, which right. is at, you know, infinitesimally small amounts. It's not even clear resveratrol is good for us anyway, right. by the way. Um, 
a matter of debate, uh, I should point out. But um, so alcohol, certainly alcohol and excess is bad for the brain. Sure. Um, in terms of, uh, okay, so we have head hits, bad, alcohol, bad. Um, you're working, as you mentioned, you're the tenderloin. Um, is there any awareness that um, amphetamine use can can disrupt brain structure or function? You know, that that's not an area that I've spent a lot of time researching in. I, you know, I incidentally take care of people that have used every substance known to man in quantities that are, you know, spectacular. Uh, but I, I haven't specifically done research uh, in that area. I'm not super well versed on the literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I ask in part because um, maybe you know a colleague or will come across a colleague who's working on this. Is there's just such a, um, a incredible increase in the use of things like Adderall, Ritalin, Modafinil, sure. Armodafinil, which I think in small amounts in clinical clinically prescribed um, situations can be very beneficial, but um, let's be honest, many people are using these on a chronic basis. And right. I don't think we really know what it does to the brain aside yeah. from increasing addiction for those substances. That's right. very clear. Well, for better or worse, we're generating a massive data set right now. <laughs> well put. Um, I'd like to briefly go back to our earlier discussion about neuroplasticity. Sure. You, you made an interesting statement, which is that we are not aware of any um, single brain area that one can stimulate in order to invoke plasticity, right. this malleability of neural architecture. Um, years ago, uh, Mike Merzenich and colleagues at UCSF um, did some experiments where they um, stimulated nucleus basalis hmm. and paired that stimulation with uh, eight kilohertz tone. Or um, in some cases, they could also stimulate um, a different brain area, the ventral tegmental area, uh, which causes release of dopamine and pair it with a tone. And, and in, it seemed in every one of these cases, they observed massive plasticity. Mm. Um, now, I look at those data and I compare them to the kind of classic data. Um, I think it was Carl Ashley that did these experiments where they would take animals and they'd scoop out a little bit of cortex, put the animal back into a learning environment, and the animal would do pretty well, mm-hmm. if not perfectly. Sure. So they'd scoop out a different region of cortex and a different animal. And by the end of maybe three, four years of these kinds of lesion experiments, they um, referred to the equal potential of the cortex, meaning they concluded that it didn't matter which piece of the cortex you took out, yeah. that there was no one critical area. So on the one hand, you've got these experiments that say, you know, you don't really need a lot of the brain. Right. And, and every once in a while, a news story will come out where um, they'll, a, patient, a person will go in for a brain scan for some other reason or an experiment. And the person seems perfectly normal and they're like missing half their cortex. Right. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you have these experiments like the stimulation of basalis or VTA, where you get massive plasticity from stimulation of one area. I was, I've never been able to reconcile these kinds of discrepant findings. And so I'd really like to, just your opinion on this. Sure. Uh, you know, what is it about the brain as an organ that lets it be both so critical at the level of individual neurons and circuits, so, so critical, and yet at the same time, um, it's uh, able to uh, circumvent these what would otherwise seem like massive lesions and holes yeah. in itself. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of it, to reconcile those experiments, you first account for the fact that they're probably in different species, right? Uh, You take out a particular portion of a pig or a rabbit brain, a small amount, you might not see a difference, but a small portion of a human brain, say the part most interested in coordinating speech or finger movement, and you're going to see profound losses or, or visual cortex, right? 
uh, take out a small portion of V1 and you'll, you'll have a visual deficit. Um, and so species matters, uh, age matters. If you take out half of the brain in a very young baby, that baby has a reasonable chance of developing high, a high degree of function uh, by having the remaining half uh, subsume some of the functions lost on the other side. Uh, because they're very, very young and their brain is still developing. It's, a, it's to some degree a blank slate with extremely high plasticity over many years. So that can overcome a lot of deficits. Um, taking an adult uh, animal's brain that isn't very well differentiated functionally uh, to begin with, you might not see those deficits. So apparently there's a lot of redundancy as well, right? There's a lot of say cerebellar and spinal circuits in other animals that generate stereotyped behavior patterns and might not need the brain at all to, to perform, say, a walking movement or, or some other uh, sequences of motor activities. So um, a lot of that depends on the experimental setup. Uh, I would say in general, adult humans are very vulnerable to losing small parts of their brains and losing discrete functions. I'm going to take the liberty of asking a question that merges across Neuralink and Tesla. I could imagine that cars, whether or not they're on autopilot mode or being driven by the human directly, um, and society generally would benefit from knowing whether or not a human is very alert or sleepy. Sure. I don't own a Tesla. Um, perhaps this technology already exists, but is there any idea that a simple sensor, maybe even of just eyelid position, or pupil size or head position mm -hmm. um, could be introduced to a car like the Tesla or another car for that matter yeah. and resolve a, a common problem, which is that when people are less alert, not just when people fall asleep, but the simple drop in alertness that occurs when people are sleepy is um, my read of the data is responsible for approximately a third, mm -hmm. a third, it's incredible, of um, accidents between vehicles. And then of course, some percentage of those are going to be lethal accidents. Right. So in terms of um, preserving life, this might seem yeah. like a minor case, but it's actually a major case scenario. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I have no, you know, special insight into how Tesla software works. I know they have brilliant engineers. Um, when I, I have a Tesla, when I drive it, it seems to know when I'm looking at the road versus not. And it yells at me if I'm not looking at the road. So How does it do that? And what voice does it use? There's a small camera uh, up by the rearview mirror. And I think it's a simple eye track. My, my guess here is that it's a simple eye tracking program. Um, and so it, it may already be the case that it's implemented, that it's detecting whether your eyes are open or not. Uh, obviously, you know, it's not um, strict. It's not stringent because sunglasses um, and I've... I've uh, seen forums on the internet where people tape over that small camera. So they, so they can balls. <laughs> oh, goodness. But, uh, you know, I think they're definitely making efforts to try to try to save lives here. Incredible. I say incredible just because I think I'm fortunate enough to live in a lifetime where there were, there were no electric cars when I was growing up. And now things are moving. Oh, so fast. Um, no pun intended. What is your wish for, brain machine interface and brain augmentation. So let, let's, let's assume that the, the clinical stuff can be worked out, or maybe you have a, a, 
a um, pet clinical condition that you just are um, just yearning to see resolved. Yeah. That would be fine too. But in addition to that, if you really just expand out. Let's say we can um, extend your life 200 years or um, we're thinking about the kind of world that your children are going to live in and their grandchildren will live in. What do you think is really possible yeah. with brain augmentation and brain machine interface? And here, please feel no bias whatsoever to answer in a way that um, reveals to us your um, your incredible empathy and consideration of clinical conditions. Because that's how you spend your days is fixing patients uh, and helping their lives be better. So if it lands in that category, great. But um, for sake of, of fun and for sake of delight and for sake of um, really getting us, the audience, to, to understand what's really possible here, yeah. um, please feel no shackles. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I... Uh... I love the idea down the road, and we're talking, you know, a 10 year, maybe 20 year time frame of uh, humans just getting control over some of the horrible ways that their brains go wrong, right? So uh, I think everybody at this point has either known someone or second order known someone, a friend of a friend who has been touched by addiction or depression, suicide, uh, obesity. These functions of the brain or, or malfunctions of the brain are what drives me. These are the things that I want to tackle in my career. Uh, you know, in terms of my kids' lifetime, uh, I'm thinking, you know, full human expansion of human cognition into uh, AI, full uh, immersion in the internet of your cognitive abilities. Uh, having no limitation for what you think uh, as bottlenecked by needing to read the Wikipedia article first uh, to have the data to inform your thoughts. Um, having communication with anyone that you want to uh, unrestricted by this, you know, flapping air past meat uh, on your face. Um, it, it's a you know, a, a means of communication that's ridiculously prone to being misunderstood. It's also a tiny, narrow bottleneck of communication. We're, you know, trying to send messages back and forth through a tiny straw, and there's no reason that needs to necessarily be true. It's the way things have always been, but it isn't the way things are going to be in the future. Uh, and uh, I think there's a, you know, a million very sci-fi possibilities in terms of banding human minds together to be even more potent as a as a multi-unit uh, organism uh, you know as an opt-in um, multi-brain uh, you know these are things that are so far down the road i can't even directly see how they would be Im implemented but the technology we're working on is a little crack in the door that allows some of this stuff to even be thought about in a realistic way well, uh, to that to that point, I you know encourage anyone who is you know excited about things like that, you know especially mechanical engineers, software engineers, robotics engineers, come to the Neuralink website and look at the jobs we've got. We need the brightest people on the planet working on these, the hardest problems uh, in the world, uh, in my opinion. And so, uh, if you want to work on this stuff, come help us. I have several responses to what you just said. Um, first off, I'll get the, the 
the least important one out of the way, which is that years ago I applied for a job at Neuralink. <laughs> um, the Neuralink website at that time was incredibly sparse. Right. It was just said Neuralink and it said, if you're interested, give us your email. So I put my email there. I got no response. So yeah. um, the, uh, they made a wise choice in um, a terrible, in error, a terrible loss. <laughs> now, uh, fast forward several years, I am um, very grateful and I think very lucky um, that you, who uh, passed through, fortunately for me, through my lab at one point, and we had some uh, fun expeditions together in the wild, uh, mm -hmm. neural exploration, so we can talk about some other time, as well as um, learning from you as you um, pass through your time at Stanford, um, but have arrived there at Neuralink, and, and I'll say that uh, they're very lucky to have you. And um, folks like Dan Adams, who I've known for your very long time. So uh, phenomenal neurosurgeons like yourself, neuroscientists and um, vision scientists like Dan and others. It's really an incredible mission. So I really want to start off by saying um, thank you to you and all your colleagues there. I know that Neuralink is really tip of the spear in being public facing with the kinds of things they're doing and, and being so forthcoming about how that work is done in animals and exactly what they're doing. Um, and that's a very brave stance to take, yeah. especially given the nature of the work. But Well, that's classic Elon, right? He, he doesn't keep secrets in public too commonly. He tells you what he's going to do and then he does it. And people are always amazed by that. You know, he releases the Tesla master plan and tells you exactly what the company intends to do for the next several years. And people assume that there's some subterfuge or the, that he is misdirecting, but it's, uh, it's right out there in the open. And I think Neuralink follows in that path of, you know, we want people to know what we're doing. We want the brightest people in the world to come help us. Uh, we, we want to be able to help patients. We want, you know, the most motivated patients with quadriplegia to, you know, visit our patient registry uh, and, and sign up to be considered for clinical trials that, that will happen in the future. We'll put a link to that, by the way. So um, maybe just uh, the direct call uh, could happen now. So you, uh, this is for people who are quadriplegic or who know people who are quadriplegic, who are right. interested in being part of this clinical trial? It's a patient registry right now that we're just collecting information to see who might be eligible for clinical trials that'll happen in the future. Uh, we're still working with the FDA to hammer out the details and, and get their final permission uh, to proceed with the trial. Great. So please see the note um, in the show note, uh, the link, excuse me, in the, in the show note captions for that. Yeah, I, I want to thank you guys for your stance of uh, being public facing and also doing the incredibly hard work. I also think the robotics aspect, which you've clarified for me uh, today, is extremely forward thinking and uh, absolutely critical. So a lot of critical engineering that no doubt will um, wick out into other domains of neurosurgery and medical technology, not just right. serving Neuralink's mission um, directly. And I really want to thank you, uh, first of all, for coming here today and uh, taking time out of your important schedule of seeing patients and doing brain surgery, literally. Happy time, to do it. Time away from your family and time away from uh, your mission at Neuralink briefly to uh, to share with people what you guys are doing. As I mentioned before, there, there's a lot of mystique around it. And even um, despite the fact that uh, Neuralink has gone out of their way to try and erase some of that mystique, uh, this to me is the clearest picture ever. Uh, to my knowledge, that um, has been given about what's going on there and, and the, the stated and the real mission and what's going on um, at the level of, of, of nuts and bolts and, and guts and brains and this kind of thing. And I really just want to thank you also for, for being you, which is uh, perhaps sounds like a, a, a kind of an odd um, thing to hear, but 
I think as made apparent by the device implanted in your hand, uh, you don't just um, do this for a job. You live and breathe and embody, truly embody this stuff around um, the nervous system and trying to figure out how to fix it, how to make it better. Yeah. And you live and breathe it. And I know your deep love for it. So I want to thank you for um, not just the uh, brains that you put into it and the energy you put into it, but also for the, the heart that you put into it. Thanks for that, Andrew. I appreciate that. Uh, we, we just want to help people. We want to make things better. Well, I know that to be true, knowing you. And um, thank you again for coming here today. And I look forward to another round of discussion and um, whenever the time happens to be when these incredible technologies have um, spelled out to the next uh, major milestone. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for today's discussion with Dr. Matthew McDougall, all about the human brain and how it functions how it breaks down, and the incredible efforts that are being carried out at Neuralink in order to overcome diseases of brain and nervous system function and to augment how the human brain works. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. McDougall's work and the specific work being done at Neuralink, please see the links that we've provided in the show note captions. If you're learning from and or enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's a terrific zero-cost way to support us. In addition, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple. And in addition, on both Spotify and Apple, you can leave us up to a five-star review. If you have questions for me or topics you'd like me to cover on the Huberman Lab podcast or guests that you'd like me to consider inviting on the Huberman Lab podcast, please put that in the comments on YouTube. I do read all the comments. In addition, please check out the sponsors mentioned at the beginning and throughout today's episode. That's the best way to support this podcast. Not so much on today's episode, but on various previous episodes of the Huberman Lab podcast, we discuss supplements. While supplements aren't necessary for everybody, many people derive tremendous benefit from them for things like enhancing sleep, focus, and hormone support. The Huberman Lab podcast is proud to have partnered with Momentous Supplements. If you'd like to hear more about the supplements discussed on the Huberman Lab podcast, please go to livemomentous, spelled O-U-S, dot com slash Huberman. Again, that's livemomentous.com slash Huberman. If you're not already following the Huberman Lab podcast on social media, we are Huberman Lab on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And on all those places, I focus on material that somewhat overlaps with content from the Huberman Lab podcast, but often is distinct from the content covered on the Huberman Lab podcast. So again, it's Huberman Lab on all social media channels. For those of you that haven't already subscribed to our so-called Neural Network newsletter, this is a completely zero-cost monthly newsletter that has summaries of podcast episodes and so-called toolkits. Toolkits are lists of about a page to two pages long that give the critical tools, for instance, for optimizing sleep or for neuroplasticity or deliberate cold exposure or deliberate heat exposure, optimizing dopamine. Again, all available to you at zero cost. You simply go to hubermanlab.com, go to the menu tab in the corner, scroll down to newsletter. You provide us your email. We do not share your email with anybody. And in addition to that, there are samples of toolkits on the hubermanlab.com website again, under newsletter, and you don't even have to sign up to access those. But I think most people do end up signing up for the newsletter because it's rich with useful information. And again, completely zero cost. Thank you once again for joining me for today's discussion with Dr. Matthew McDougall. And last, but certainly not least, thank you for your interest in science. <laughs> <laughs>